Hi, I'm Ryan Field, and I beat the often path by measuring the brain to make people's lives better. What if a brain scan was part of our regular checkup? What if we could detect and prevent diseases like dementia far in advance with non-invasive tech? Something just as simple as putting on a bicycle helmet. Well, could we accelerate treatment discovery, improve patient outcomes, and transform neuromedicine, whatever that is? Joining us today is the CEO of Kernel, a company based here in Los Angeles that is up to some out-of-this-world stuff. I was lucky enough to visit their offices, and their tech is freaking amazing. I even tried it on myself. Ryan Field is an inventor with more than 20 granted U.S. patents, and Kernel has received well over $150 million in funding and counting, so buckle up for just a ridiculously awesome episode. Here's Ryan Field. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Welcome to the show, Ryan. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. You have done some wild, wild stuff in your career up until now. I saw at least 20 patents, probably many more by this point, if I had to guess. You have gone through education. You have worked in various sectors for major companies on the software side. Now you have this crazy um, new neurotech company. So where should we jump in to the story of your career arc and the story of your mission? Yeah, I mean, I would I would probably go back to when I was um, back in North Carolina as an undergrad student. I um, you know was studying physics and engineering at the time. Was you know kind of interested in how I could take these these things I was learning and do something useful that helped people with it. I was really into you know teaching and education and just working to improve lives and and you know the you know the future for others. Um, and I, I had this idea of like, oh, I know what I'm going to do when I finish my undergraduate studies. I'm going to go do an MD PhD. I want to like, you know, study some really hard, you know, technical stuff and get, uh, you know, uh, an MD degree so that I could go and like combine medicine and, you know, engineering and technology, uh, in order to, to do something cool. And, uh, I had some friends at the time who were like, Ryan, you're crazy. Uh, you can't handle the sight of blood. You like passed <laughs> out camp. last time you had a TB test. I can't do that either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, actually, you're right. So cut the, the MD part out of it. I'll just do a PhD, but I'll find a program that's doing some really interesting stuff at the intersection of engineering and biology. Uh, and so that... It kind of took me to Columbia, where I joined uh, Professor Ken Shepard's lab, and uh, he was working on a whole like bunch of different bioelectronics applications. And I picked up one, you know, a research area uh, looking at uh, designing a new type of camera. And you know, we usually think of camera as cameras as measuring colors. And you know, you know, you take a picture of something, and you, each pixel has a color associated with an RGB value, sure. and you know, you form an image from that. Well, this type of camera, instead of measuring color, measures time. And <laughs> the reason it measures time is what? because uh, you can use, yeah, yeah exactly. It's a, it's a totally different way of doing. Um, this is a movie. You, you are in LA. You're just time. pitching me on something. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> uh, and. Um, uh, not time in like the macro sense, but time in a very like small sense. So, so what you do is you shine a very short pulse of laser light on uh, like a biological sample. And there's this effect called fluorescence where that sample can emit light and uh, it will emit light for only a few nanoseconds, a very, very short amount of time. But how long it emits light tells you something about the tissue and the environment it's in. So it's a different way of imaging um, and so you can think of microscopes and you've probably seen pictures where they're like looking at, you know, you know, biopsies, say for cancer or something, and they're stained and you look at them. Um, well, those are all color based. So they use colors, the stains to understand, you know, what the different constituents are. And here we're using uh, time and these temporal properties about what was being emitted from the tissue to understand what those properties were. So it was just a different way of looking at it. Um, so spent six years at Columbia building this, designing a bunch of electronics, working with folks uh, and you know, doing microscopy and things, but really learned a lot about measuring very short timescales. Um, you know, so I, I finished grad school. I went on, worked at Intel for a little bit uh, in a bioelectronic sensing group there in their research division uh, before joining a LiDAR company. And before if you're we familiar with that, LiDAR, it's um, one of these core technologies. 
Do you oh, know anything? So do you know anything about A6 or or SPADs? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, well because so that, I don't. How, uh, because uh, I have no idea what those people. terms mean. I had to Google both of those <laughs> things before this interview. I'm just trying to sound smart. I have no idea what we're talking about, but I know that you do. You do. If there's one thing nobody likes, it's when their favorite podcast is interrupted with a commercial. And yes, I took the liberty of just assuming that this is your favorite podcast because <laughs> why wouldn't it be? Anyways, this episode is brought to you by my company, my agency, Aloha.agency. That's like Aloha without the H. A-L-O-A.agency, a digital marketing agency that helps everybody with everything in the digital domain from website design and building to e-commerce sites to videos, social media, video, 3D design and industrial design, and just literally everything that a brand or a nonprofit or a purpose-driven organization needs to grow and to sustain themselves and to just look awesome in the digital space. So if you are interested or if you know somebody who might need these kinds of services, check out our website, aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. And now back to the show. Continue. LIDAR, I actually do know what that is. Oh, great. Yeah. And so ASICs and SPADs are, so ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. And you, what you can think about that is everyone knows of like the processors in your phone, like Apple has these, you know, events and they're talking about like, you know, their A17 processor or um, they just released new Mac processors this week. Um, and so everyone knows about those. And an ASIC is a chip like that, but it's designed for a very specific purpose. And so what I was doing was designing ASICs for measuring these specific time uh, images. Whoa. So ASIC is kind of like the, the, the platform that you use to, to make these cameras. And SPADs awesome. stand for Single Photon Avalanche Diode or Detector, which is a really sensitive type of light detector. You can measure individual photons, the smallest quantum of light uh, you can measure with these detectors. And you use this and some knowledge about statistics to understand these temporal characteristics of the, the biology that I was, I was describing before. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is you can use it for biology, but you can also use it for LIDAR. Uh, the same core technology is used for LIDAR. So we were doing time of flight based uh, sensing. So, you know, LIDAR works. So by pulsing laser light and measuring how long it takes for the light to come back. So, you know, decades ago, they measured how far away the moon was by putting a mirror on the moon and firing a laser at it and measuring how much time it took for the laser to get there and back. And that same fundamental principle is how, uh, you know, self-driving cars can see the world around them today. They fire lasers out in all different directions and measure how long it takes for things to reflect back. And that gives them this 3D map of where things are spatially in the world. Although Elon Musk yeah. didn't want to do so, that because uh, uh, he said he should use cameras only. I just finished the Elon Musk book. He 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 didn't want to use lidar, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I I think he might be wrong about that, but yeah. other others definitely do. Well, I think the reason why is because Elon's a great businessman and he wants to sell people something that exists. And cameras exist, and you know the image processing to you know estimate distances from cameras exists. So like he can put it in the car and sell it today and mark it up with the premium, whereas an affordable lidar system didn't exist. Mm. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why you know I joined a, a company to build lidar, and there were probably a hundred other companies trying to build lidar sensors um, at the time, and it was because there wasn't this affordable sensor, but tons of applications for it because you know whether you have self-driving or not there's there's always safety right like we have backup cameras that are standard in our cars today because they improve the safety you run over fewer things as you're backing up right. um, and you know you can think about that as the same way as lidar you don't have to go all the way to being able to drive autonomously but it's another uh you know data stream that helps you understand the the world around you and, and operate more safely yeah, completely. Well, you don't have to, you know, so, I still run over things, anyhow. but it's intentional. That's the difference. I, I, I'm aware of what I'm running over. Uh, when of I course, do it. Of That's course. the difference. It's not, uh, it's not subconscious. Um, okay. So you've been building a lot of this tech. Now, how did you get involved in the brain or neurotech space? Where did that shift happen? Yeah. So I was working on LiDAR and as I mentioned, there were like, you know, a hundred other companies doing the same thing at the time. So very much on the beaten path, right? Like everyone was doing this. 
uh, tons of money getting invested into it. It was going to be the future autonomous driving and, you know, everyone's just piling on in this space. Uh, and this was, you know, about seven, eight years ago when I was working on that. Um, five years ago, a little over five years ago now, I, I get this call from uh, this company down in LA called Kernel. And they were like, hey, we read about some of the PhD work that you've done, you know, the work you were doing in Columbia. And we have an idea to build something kind of similar using like those types of technologies. Do you want to come and try and build a sensor for measuring the brain? And here I am doing this thing that like hundreds or thousands of other people are already doing, uh, like really trying to, you know, build these nice LiDAR sensors affordably and at scale. Or I have this opportunity to, you know, kind of change directions entirely and take on probably one of the hardest problems in the world, which is understanding our brains. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't resist. I was like, oh, I want to help people. I want to do, do hard things. And, you know, I want to take advantage of a lot of the, the things that I've picked up over the years. And this was a perfect combination of all those things and a great opportunity. So I said, yes, I think it was uh, less than two weeks, uh, maybe, you know, a, nine days or something uh, from the time that uh, came down to LA till I was you know, headed back uh, to, to start. It was a really exciting and, and uh, just interesting uh, path to take. And, and you started as CTO and have now since worked your way up from there. So you quickly rose to the top of this thing. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think it was just because you had better fundamental insights or? Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't even start as CTO. I started as just leading an ASIC design team. So okay. starting at like the, the core sensor, could we build the sensor to measure the brain? And so myself and a group of about 10 other people uh, designed these chips to start to, to see if we could measure the brain using light and these pulse time of flight measurements. Uh, and, you know, with a little bit of success there, started to grow the team and take on more responsibilities and roles within the company. So, um, you know, I, I think about three years ago, I became CTO of the company and started working to organize all of the technical directions, right? We have the electrical engineering teams, the ASIC design teams, the mechanical engineering team, the software engineering, uh, the neuroscience, the data science, all of these things had to come together in just the right way. So you could build a product and do something meaningful with it. And so that was really what I was doing up until about February of this year. And then in February, uh, you know, uh, Brian Johnson, who was our founder and CEO uh, previously, he, you know, he was the one with the big vision that like, we need to measure the brain. We need better tools for doing this. Uh, and he, he, you know, had a lot of conviction that this needed to happen and, uh, you know, he asked me, he said, Hey, I, I want you to step up and take on the role of CEO. I think you can kind of lead us into the next direction where we're going to start to take this technology and really apply it to hard problems that exist today. So, you know, that was February of this year. And we've since kind of uh, set out on a path to really show what types of really important and valuable things we can do with the technology we've built now. That's so incredible. What a fascinating story. And I was looking, of course, at your website and some of the materials and also some of the publications. So you're dealing a lot with biomarkers and you're trying to make a, a, a collection of biomarkers. So can you help explain to, to us what the significance of biomarkers are and why cataloging them, why better understanding them is an important thing? Yeah. So there are all kinds of biomarkers that are used today, right? So like a very simple biomarker that everyone's familiar with is cholesterol. Right. Like you, you have this measure of cholesterol in your blood and there are blood tests to get that. And it tells you something about, you know, your over, overall cardiovascular health, say, or some, some, some insight into it. Um, and so really it's just about individually, you know, what, what is the current state of something, you know, within you? And can we use that to drive better, uh, you know, treatment decision making or better diagnostics or better screening for, for different types of diseases. So a biomarker is really just something about your biology that tells us it's informative. Um, 
And, you know, the, an easy way to think of it is, you know, we're having this conversation right now, and I bet your brain is doing something completely different than my brain. Right? I bet that too. So you're probably like, uh, <laughs> I, have, yeah. I have that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually shouldn't, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't try and guess what your brain is doing, no. but I'm sure it's different, right? Like we're, we're thinking about different things. You don't want to dumb yourself down to that level. And, trust me. You know, one of, <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> and, um, and so what, what we were really focused on is understanding these differences between individuals and then you know, so we're able to measure that you and I maybe have different activity in our brain right now, but then understanding the meaning behind it. What does that mean? Right? So you're a host of this, this podcast show, you've had, you know, dozens of these conversations, right? Like this is, this is a comfortable space for you. you know, I'm a, a kind of a technologist coming uh, here and trying to convey in, you know, very simple terms, complex technical information that I deal with every day. And so like my brain is probably running tons of different processes uh, that are different from yours. Mm. Um, and so that at a very high level is what biomarkers are all about. Mm. So why is it then some of the publications you featured, one of them is about alcohol use, the other is about ketamine. Why is that important? And why start there with the first two uh, publications? What's the significance there? Yeah, um, it's a great question because you, you think about these things and it's like, well, how how is measuring alcohol and its effect on someone's brain helpful to anyone? Um, and what we were really doing with both of those was we were trying to, um, you know, give an example of what we can measure using healthy populations, right? So it's always easier to start doing things, the measurements about the body, the brain, et cetera, on people who are healthy. So rather than jumping right into disease states. And so here, what we did is we said, we'll, we'll design this study with alcohol and we'll give people three different drinks uh, on three different days. So they would come to the office or to our, to our labs, uh, you know, have a drink and get their brain measured. In one of the drinks, there was no alcohol at all. Uh, it was just a juice. And you could choose between orange juice and cranberry juice, depending on your preference. Um, and uh, we, we also used vodka as the alcohol. Uh, we did a lot of testing to find just the right vodka in order to, uh, you know, mask the flavor so we could make a good placebo with no alcohol, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and the answer is Tito's, just so you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, oh, okay. Yep. Go on. Uh, no comment. So, so Tito's and juice, whether cranberry or orange, um, and you would either have no alcohol, a moderate amount of alcohol. So we'd kind of dose it based on your body weight and sex so that you would have a BAC, a blood alcohol content level of 0.04, which is kind of, you know, midpoint between like no alcohol and the, the legal limit. And then we tried to get you to 0.08 in the third drink. So each of the three drinks was meant to hit a different level. And the idea here was we should be able to see differences both in behavior and your brain based on how much alcohol you've drank. So we had people do a task where they were required to uh, exert inhibitory control. So the, the idea was that as people drink more alcohol, their inhib inhibitory control would be lessened. They would be less uh, able to you know, withhold responses to things. Um, and so we did this task. We, we showed that, you know, we could, we could give people alcohol to, you know, impair their cognition, their cognitive abilities, their ability to do this inhibitory control. Um, and what we found was that if we gave you no alcohol or, uh, 0.4. the middle amount of alcohol, yeah. the 0.04, uh, there was no difference in your behavior. You were able to behave the same way. You could achieve the same goals, the same performance on on the task that we, the challenge task we gave. Uh, but if we gave you a 0.08, we could start to see a difference in the behavior, which I think everyone knows. Everyone's been there, or most people have been there, right? Uh, you, you're 0.08, and that's why it's a legal limit, is you hit 0.08, and it actually affects our ability to, to function normally. Um, but what was interesting is when you go and look at the brain, so you look at the brain measurement and how it changed for the different amounts of alcohol, even at 0.04, you could see a difference. And so that was, that was really revealing to us that you can measure things in the brain that are more sensitive than the outward behavioral presentation of them, which makes sense. 
yeah. and right, like our brains are, are crazy complex. They're doing tons of things. Right. And in this case, what they're, they're really doing is they're compensating for the impairment of the alcohol. So what we saw was an increase in brain activity uh, due to the, the alcohol consumption. And it's like, you know, you're working really hard to do the same thing, but you're doing the same thing. Um, and, and so it was a really interesting result and a good study. And we were really pleased with the outcome because it showed that, you know, we built this technology uh, that can measure the brain. And, you know, it, it has some value beyond just saying like, oh, well, I can just do a, you know, a cognitive test and we'll see uh, how you perform on that cognitive test. Well, you could perform the same score, like you could have a perfect score, but still have something in your brain. Your brain could be, you know, facing some deficit and having to work harder in order to achieve that score. And we want to be able to measure that and see what we can do clinically uh, to, to kind of take advantage of that capability. So that was the example with alcohol. Uh, you okay. know, it's a fun example. We did a yeah. lot of piloting. Uh, as I told you, we, we uh, you know, found the best best booze to use. A lot of easy volunteers, and, um, right. You know, had a nice scientific result that came out of it. Yeah, there are tons of volunteers. We, uh, you know, overwhelming, uh, you know, numbers of people interested in doing that study. Yeah. So. <laughs> So, all right. So, um, so you're, able, um, you're able to measure stuff uh, high definition, or you're able to collect. And, and w this device looks functionally something like a helmet, I guess we could say, like a motorcycle helmet with just the top part, right? Um, so, what makes it higher definition? Yep. Is this based on EEGs? Is this based on a different technology? How are we able to get that resolution from this device? Yeah. Um, what we did, and, you know, it goes back to kind of this time of flight measurement is we, we kind of looked at what others had done in the space. And we knew that uh, there'd been a lot of academic research work in a domain called functional MRI. So, you know, you, you've heard of MRI, you go and get scanned if you have maybe like some pain in your hip or something. Uh, and we'll take an MRI, but you can get an MRI of your brain and you can do a special type that looks at uh, how your brain is functioning. So it looks at changes in blood oxygenation levels within the brain. And those changes in blood oxygenation levels are correlated to brain activity because our brains um, are highly metabolic, right? They, they use a lot of energy. And as they use energy to do that metabolism, they need oxygen. And so you can see what parts of the brain are demanding more oxygen and therefore know uh, which areas are, are activating. And so this technology has been around. It's like a, you know, a multi-million dollar machine. It runs in research labs. It, it's really great uh, for, for proving out things like proof of concept. Uh, but it's totally impractical to use in any kind of meaningful way. So we saw that and we were like, okay, that's an interesting model. You can get a lot of rich information on the, the brain. Uh, and then we, we looked at um, you know, a, a, a different type of technology to measure the same thing, which is called functional near-infrared spectroscopy. And so the big difference between these is that functional near-infrared spectroscopy uses light to measure those changes in blood oxygenation. It's very similar to a pulse oximeter. So if you've been uh, you know, to the doctor, which I'm, I'm sure you have, they yeah. you know, clip a little thing on your right. finger. Yeah, exactly. And it says like, hey, you've got a 98% uh, you know, oxygen saturation. Everything is good. And I think we all know during COVID, right, there are these concerns about like low oxygen saturation and you know, needing to, to be on ventilators and, and uh, have extra support because of that. So it's that technology, that light technology, but applied to the brain and the ability to measure uh, changes in oxygenation in the brain, um, that, that is, that's what FNIRS is based on. And so we built a special type of FNIRS called time domain FNIRS. And that time do domain piece gives us more information about what the light is doing as it interacts with the tissue. So you have to remember that, you know, to get to the brain, we have to go through our scalp. We have to go through our skull. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And then we can get to the brain. And then that light has to come all the way back out. And <clears throat> so you want to be able to separate things like what's the effect of the scalp from the, the what's the effect of the brain. And one way to do that is to use this time of flight information. Just like you know with a, a, a car and LIDAR that if you pulse, um, pulse a laser and something comes back in a very short amount of time, that's close to you, right? You know, because of the speed of light, distance is proportional to the amount of time. Um, <clears throat> and then if something's far away, it's a much longer time. 
And conceptually, that same thing applies to the brain. So we can measure photons that, that only spend a very little amount of time in the head. And we know those, those could only go through the scalp. It is physically impossible for them to have passed through the brain unless they broke the speed of light. Um, and so you, it doesn't happen. It can't happen. Um, but then what we know is that photons that travel longer time before they, they get measured, uh, they've had enough time to penetrate through the scalp, the skull, into the brain, and then back out. So we have this measure of something that only went through the scalp and something that went through the scalp, the skull, and the brain. Uh, and so then we can kind of subtract, we can conceptually think of subtracting the component of the scalp to get to the, the amount in the brain. And that's the, the real power behind the technique that we've done and why it's uh, very different from other things that had been out there uh, is we, we took all that complex electronics and sensors and everything um, that's required to do these precise time of flight measurements. And we shrunk it down and integrated it into something you can hold in your hand. So and before I started, right? uh, there, it's non-invasive, completely non-invasive. So the amount of laser light we put into your head is a small fraction of what you're exposed to when you're out in the sun. It's a small, small, small amount of energy that we put in um, because we're measuring single photons again, right? Remember those fads, those single photon uh, avalanche diodes, they're, they're what we use. And so you don't need very much light in order to see these changes as, a, as the photons travel through the head. That's truly, yeah. truly brilliant. And um, yeah, you know, I, I also like if, if you'd like take a second and we pull up Wikipedia okay. um, and look at the near infrared spectroscopy um, page, there's an FNIRS page. <clears throat> and if you, uh, if you look there, you know, it describes a bunch of math and other things there. Uh, and you can scroll down and there's a section called time domain, which is this, this okay. technique that we're talking about. And uh, the, the, this is kind of the consensus opinion uh, as it was, I don't know, the last time this page was updated a few years ago. And it says time domain based devices are totally immobile, space consuming, the most difficult to make, costliest, hugest, and heaviest. <laughs> Even so, they have the highest depth sensitivity and are capable of presenting the most accurate values of baseline hemoglobin concentration and oxygenation. So uh, we haven't updated this. I love I love seeing it there because I think it's just kind of funny to like see this description of something that is huge and costly hugest. and you know very cumbersome. And we've like put all of that. Yeah, hugest. Uh, uh, how <laughs> can you be so smart? <laughs> We have the hugest solution, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, so it's just kind of funny to see where the field was and how much advancement we made in a very short time uh, with a few key insights pulling from technologies that were being developed for, you know, as I said, LiDAR, but also, um, uh, you know, the cell phone-based uh, LiDAR, right? Like Apple put LiDAR in a oh, cell yeah, phone, the camera, yeah. which really made a lot of the components and the, the yeah, the core technologies that, that go into it, very inexpensive and easy to use. Mm -hmm. So we saw that, we took advantage of it, and we designed our custom chips using these uh, these same things that were happening in the consumer electronics space so we could measure the brain. Well, I think you've done a very good job. I know your brain is spinning a lot to get here, but you've done a very good job painting the picture of how we arrived at this and how you arrived at this and why you're uniquely suited to do this, which is which is awesome. So now let's maybe shift into the significance of this. And one of them you hinted at earlier, which is that in the time domain of human time, people don't often get the kind of updates because if you have to go to a million dollar machine or you have to go to a physical location to get this kind of data, people, that's impractical. And people just can't do that very often. So they're not getting as many updates as they might need to check in on a condition. And if, if I'm wrong about this, just say so. But this allows people to get more frequent updates and better insight into what's going on in their brain, which could be very valuable to certain groups of people. So why? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would even say, uh, here's a question for you. Uh, how many times have you had your brain measured? Uh, well, depending on how many conspiracy theories I want to believe in, I can say zero. No, probably zero. Yeah, right. I mean, aside from you know the, I'll the put on chips a that were put in the COVID vaccines. Exactly, whatever, right. Aside from the satellites that are beaming <laughs> yeah. down on me right now. And, but no, no, I, I don't, not, not that I'm, I've been in an MRI machine before, but not on my brain. Yeah, and and so I think that's the thing. It's like, 90% of the people you ask that question, maybe more, will say zero, 
right? And for me, it was zero. Like before I came to Colonel, it was zero. Now it's like once a week, but <laughs> right, every uh, single you know, it was day. A zero then. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think that's. <laughs> You know, just walk into the office, put yeah, on my like, oh, there flow, go do a do a couple of tests. Um, but but really, that that is a thing. It's really like a binary situation. So yes, like you want to increase the frequency of measurement, but you know, increasing it from never to even once a year is a huge improvement and a huge milestone. Um, and that's really what we're pushing toward. Is you know, how do you how do you start to make measuring the brain a routine part of you know, getting an annual checkup and being, you know, being checked out, right? Like there's no measure today that does anything like that. They listen to your heart. They listen to your lungs. They do a blood test, right? Uh, you know, maybe they'll look at uh, some moles on your skin or something, but no one's checking your brain. And that's like such a core part of who we are and what we do and, and how we behave. Um, and so it's kind of mind blowing. And that was one of the big things that, uh, you know, Brian, our founder, he, he saw, like he saw this, this was being crazy, right? Like you could, you couldn't get your brain really measured, even if you wanted to, it's like so difficult and you have to really be, you know, in an environment that has access to research institutions and the capabilities to even do that. It's not something you can go to your doctor and get done. So that's the significance of what we're after and why we built the tech. And specifically, you know, I'll come back to that alcohol demonstration that I, I was talking about on healthy individuals. So right now, what we're doing is we're running a study where we're using our, our headset, Colonel Flow, and we're measuring patients who have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And we're comparing them to patients who are healthy. And the objective of this study is to show that we can uh, pick up signatures, biomarkers in the brain, that separate the healthy group from the cognitively impaired group. Wow. And our hope is, you know, obviously, if, if we can see this, like we start here with people we know have been diagnosed. And if we see that very cleanly, we know that there's a threshold somewhere in between where you should be able to, to predict which healthy individual currently presenting as healthy would progress into, uh, you know, some form of early dementia. And, you know, this is where it gets back to being able to measure your brain even once a year as a, a starting point, right? Like if you can start to track changes in brain function and cognition on an annual basis, you really have a new tool to, you know, get in front of some of these, uh, you know, cognitive decline and other ailments that, you know, are only going to get worse as our population ages, right? Like we all know that we have a, an aging population. People are living longer. It's a great thing. Uh, and now we want to make sure that those people who are living longer uh, are also cognitively healthy so they can enjoy those longer, um, you know, longer lifespans. So how might, um, how might having that knowledge help us treat these things? I mean, obviously what you've painted is very insightful, but what might we do if we had information like that sooner? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some like basic, um, like, you know, I'll say off the shelf interventional things you can do, right? Like diet and exercise, like they're a good starting point. Um, you know, socialization, it's another like key piece of maintaining cognitive function, uh, long-term. And so it's like really getting that data to know, it's just like you get your cholesterol test and they're like, well, you know, go out and exercise, go out and change your diet, uh, and maybe take a statin. Right. And, you know, right now in the case of, uh, dementia, we have, you can go out and exercise, you can change your diet. And just now, like recently this year, uh, there are drugs approved that are, uh, I don't want to oversimplify things, but uh, I'll simplify it a bit. They're like, say it's a statin, right? Like they remove amyloid plaques from the brain, which allows you to slow the rate of decline for, uh, you know, these forms of dementias associated with Alzheimer's. So there are new treatments that have been developed and approved now. Uh, there are more in the pipeline. There are tons of companies working on this space. And so you can really see a future of the world where, uh, we can start to treat the brain in similar ways as we can treat the heart. Um, you can, you know, measure the cholesterol. You could measure, you know, the uh, amyloid plaque buildup or the tau proteins that are in the blood. Uh, you can measure the function of the heart with a stress test. You get on the treadmill and you run and you, you know, listen to the electrical signals. You see that everything is normal. You can measure the brain with a stress test. We put the helmet on. Uh, we have you do a couple of tasks, you know, Think about like we did with the, the alcohol study where we gave them an inhibitory challenge. We can give it a cognitive challenge or a, a memory-based challenge. 
and see how the brain responds to that stress. And so you can start to see how like understanding the brain and understanding our health is never about one modality on its own. It's always about this full picture. And the more different perspectives you have to understand the organ, the better. And that's really how we're, we're thinking about it in the case of the, the work we're doing around cognitive decline and dementia, is we're one of many types of uh, you know, modalities or measurements that would be used in order to better understand the brain, where right now we have none. So like, there's definitely a need for developing tools in this space. What a truly, truly, truly brilliant concept. I assume you're familiar with that book, Blue Ocean Strategy. This sounds like the bluest of blue oceans ever. And it seems like uh, the, the, the market would bear that out. <coughs> as far as I've seen, you have raised over $150 million in funding, maybe more. Maybe that information's out of date. Um, so talk to me about the, the entrepreneur side or the business side of this. You mentioned at the beginning of our talk that you originally got into teaching because you wanted to help people. And obviously you went through schooling. Do you feel that you were always entrepreneurial at heart? Is that something that you discovered later in life? Is that something that was reluctantly forced upon you? How did you end up combining your scientific study with the idea of making companies? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, like... To say it was forced upon me is, I think, a little extreme, but I think it was like a, a product of my circumstances, right? Like I wanted to to be in these environments where I was able to work with small, scrappy teams who are working on really hard problems and things that are, you know, way too risky for big corporations to take on. And, you know, that that description is a startup, right? And by nature, you, you end up at these small companies, these startups that are, you know, backed by investors. And, you know, as a result, you always have to have your business hat on because you have to make sure the work that you're doing is tied in some ways uh, to, you know, what their financial gain as investors are, right? Like there are investors who believe in, you know, investing in, you know, a, a greener world and a brighter future and, you know, better mental health for, for all and, you know, longer lifespans. Um, but like the part that you always have to add on to that is so that they can make more money, right? right? Like everyone's looking for their, you know, 10x, 100x re return. Uh, and, you know, you can have the vision and the, the dream, but you also have to have, um, you know, how that ties into the market and, you know, how it, um, uh, you know, will will ultimately create value for you know the shareholders, which are investors and the employees who are building the the technology and tools. And so, you know, that entrepreneurial side of me, that that you know business side of me, I, I think I just kind of developed out of necessity, right? I wanted to work on these problems, and the best way to work on these problems was to understand how they map onto the the markets and how to kind of speak the language to interact with folks and you know get the get the support and uh, you know, business alignment around the vision that you want to, to move things forward. So it wasn't a dream of mine. I didn't like, you know, as a kid, right. I didn't like say, I'm right. going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I was like, I, I like building things and I like helping people. And that's, that's like the thing that drove me forward. And then I, I just did whatever I had to around that in order to kind of, uh, you know, realize that, that dream and that, that, uh, desire to, um, you know, have be a positive change in the world. At some point, you just recognized, okay, this is the path or a path that will enable me to do these other things that I really like to do, which, which is actually a, a common thread that I've heard from entrepreneurs. Um, how much stress do you feel that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? What percentage of your day is stressing out? <laughs> huh. I would say 0% is stressing out, but uh, maybe 90% is stressful. Right. Like uh, <laughs> okay, you know, everything, uh, everything is stressful. I, I feel like, you know, there's just like you're, you're managing risks and like risk management is a stressful thing to, to do and think about just because you're like, ah, right. Like this could go wrong and this could go wrong. And that, that induces this feeling of stress. Um, but then there's also stress management and how you you're able to manage it and, and just kind of get through it. So uh, I'll say I, I wake up every morning and go for a five or six mile jog uh, here oh, in nice. LA. I run every single morning, which Very is like nice. my my meditation uh, time, right? Like it's it's time for me to kind of be alone with my thoughts and 
and you know, you know, think about what I want to get done today and how I'm going to tackle some of the things ahead of me. And I think that really sets me up in a position to to be able to manage the stresses that come in very well. So when something new comes in, I'm like, oh no, this just blew up my plans. Uh, I, I think I'm in a good good headspace throughout the whole day to kind of uh, you know manage that. You know, and, and so I, I obviously have a lot of work stress. I also have a, a, a one-year-old son. So oh, it's like my I got family, family stress, right? Like yeah. having a kid yes, you running do. around yes, is also like very stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but, but it's all stuff you can manage. And you just kind of like find the joy in the challenges that are, that are coming ahead of you. And you know what like the, the, the big vision and end goal you want to get to is. So that's kind of how I get through a lot of the stress is just one setting myself up for, for success by starting the day out, out, outright and in a, a position of you know, calm. Uh, and then two is just kind of always keeping in mind why, like, why am I doing this? Right. Like I'm dealing with the stress right now because I care about uh, the outcomes that, that I want. And I want to see, you know, uh, better, better measurements for people who, um, you know, we talked about dementia. We, we also are doing a lot of work in depression now. So it's like, how can we do That's things huge. to help quantify, you know, conditions that are really hard, right? Really hard to deal with. And, you know, I think we have a, a, a huge opportunity to make a big impact. And, and that's why I kind of get up every day and, and, you know, fight through the stress and, and work through things in a different, uh, different ways that I can. Uh, very, very healthy. Are you one of the types of people who, uh, when it t- comes time to go to sleep, do you just put your head on a pillow and you're out and you wake up the next morning or do you sometimes <laughs> stay up with your head spinning or do you wake up at three in the morning and your brain is, is panicking or thinking about something that you've got to get done? Yeah. Uh, this is a funny question. And I laugh because uh, it drives my wife mad that uh, I'm the type of person who, by the time my head hits the pillow, oh. I've spent every ounce of energy I have yeah. and I'm just out. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll wake up at four in the morning or four thirty, but, but that's just cause like I've recharged and I'm ready to go again. Uh, and it's not because, uh, right. Like, <laughs> it's I, a I, I can't superhero so, skill. So it drives me nuts because I like am out immediately. Yeah. I, I am actually, it's funny. Someone's multiple times have been asked me, you know, like, what's your, your superpower. And I think it is like, I can sleep almost anywhere. Like that I can get on a plane and before we take off, I'll be asleep. Oh my uh, God. And you'll stay asleep for the whole uh, flight? Yeah. Like red no. eyes, no problem. I'll just like <laughs> sit on a plane, headphones, eye mask out. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to have to shut this interview off. I can't handle You know what? I don't want to hear it. I'm not, I'm not envious of almost anything <laughs> in this world, but if there's one thing, it might be that. <laughs> That's for sure. Because I will, I'll be so oh. tired and I'll go to sleep and then I'll wake up at three in the morning and I'll remember that I didn't dot an I on a form that I filled out two years ago and I'll wonder about what the consequence of that is. Like my brain is always spinning about random stuff or it just goes down a path and then I'll remember, oh shoot, I have that thing six months from now that I have to do. And then I think, just shut up, man, just stop it. <laughs> For one night, um, yeah, I would give almost anything to have that in my own life. So it must be nice. You know, think, think of the future where you could have a, say, neuroimaging tool in your home. You know, I'm not saying this is the near future, but, you know, say, you know, seven, eight years from now, you have a, a neuroimaging device in your, your home. You wake up at 3 a.m., you put it on, and you look at your cell phone, and it uh, presents you with a calming uh, set of images and sounds to get your brain back into a, a state of calm so you can go back to sleep and, you know, achieve this mental state that you're after. Uh, you know, I get asked a lot, how does the work we're doing in neuroimaging tie in with some of these recent trends and things like generative AI and others? And, you know, I, I think that is is one of the ways in which it could be. It's like you could have this this menu of, of selections. It's like, oh, I need to focus right now. How do I get to this state of focus? And, you know, you have your generative AI building uh, a focus state for you based on your brain activity and what, uh, you know, stimulus it can present to you in order to get there. I don't think that's the near future, but that's a future that can exist once you have better measures of the brain. So you wake up in the night panicked, uh, you know, starting like anxiety building, yeah. uh, you know, starting to feel some stress. 
you put this on and just let the let the device take over to to soothe you and and calm you out um it's an interesting idea and like I, i could see a future of the world where that type of thing is possible well, you've got some AirPods in, so but, are those- you know, obviously, it raises tons of other questions. Yes, it, it, it well, sure, and we don't have time to get. Oh, it. Of course, there's giant ethical, but yeah, the potential <laughs> for mind control is extreme at that point. But if you have the new AirPods Pro, they have that noise canceling feature, which I love. I love audio and meditative music has a profound effect on calming me. And sometimes I just can't wait for the day as that tech improves that the headphones inside my ears with noise canceling also, I would be thrilled if I could wear them all night in a comfortable way. So not, you could sleep with them in and then let's say it detects something in your brain and then it just starts playing calming meditative music proactively. So I don't have to pick up my phone and look at something. It just happens. And then I'm just instantly uh, calm again without even realizing it and preferably without even waking up, that would be like a dream scenario for me. So may that happen. May Apple and yeah. you team up in seven years and figure that out. That would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, just tell them to give me a call next time you're okay. talking to Yeah, him. Uh, well, t- t- I'm, I have Tim <laughs> on after this. Actually, I got to bump you because he's uh, he's very particular uh, about being on time now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you have such a, an incredible story. You found such a um, cool thing. Um, your journey is just so profoundly inspiring. And I knew from looking at the website that also Kernel is just such an inspiring and important technology. And I'm happy to hear from you the significance of that. And as somebody who my grandpa suffered from dementia extremely uh, before he ended up dying. And so the thought that we might be able to help some people, and I know what a toll dementia has on people towards the end of their life. The idea of being able to prevent that is huge. And I think anybody who knows somebody who's experienced it would feel very much the same way. Um, So with that said, you are based in, in LA and I'm in LA, so the next time you need somebody to drink and put something on their brain, uh, you know, you just give me a ring, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll be your next batch of test subjects. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you can, you can bring your own, you can BYO <laughs> beverage. Uh, we we can didn't tell you to drink after. for this one. Uh, <laughs> Does it also seem uh, to I don't indicate... know what you're drinking. It could just be water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think with a real lesson that I'll take from this talk that we've had is that you can keep yourself at a 0.04 BAC and function normally. So for people out there who are wondering whether they can day drink on the job, the answer is yes, up to 0.04%. So that's the sweet spot. Stay there and you'll be fine. If you go beyond that, you're in a dangerous territory. Is that is that a good summary of everything we've described? You, you heard so that from Ross, not me. I just <laughs> just uh, put the disclaimer out there. Yeah, that was... okay. yeah he pulls his name from it. Um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. It's it's an absolute pleasure to get to know you. So for people who are in tech or who are in academia or who might have some kind of idea or who want to contribute in the ways that you wanted to and maybe aren't as far down the path as you are, what would you advise? What's a summary, a lesson learned, something unconventional that you might have picked up along the way that somebody wouldn't know as we close this thing out? Yeah. I mean, uh, every time I kind of look back and think, you know, I, 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 I was lucky. Like, I, I was incredibly lucky that, uh, you know, something I, I worked on mapped exactly onto, you know, <clears throat> this particular application and someone connected those dots and, and kind of brought me into this, this position. But I also think people, and this isn't, um, I think, profound advice or uh, it, you know, in any way unique, really. It's just like um, one way to, to, to kind of um, set yourself up for, for these types of opportunities is you gotta make, make your own luck. And like, really that's all about uh, getting to know people, talking to people who are working on interesting things, whether or not it's exactly what you're interested in or, or, or you know, it's, it's adjacent. I think it's, it's more about just being part of different conversations and, you know, pulling on threads that interest you a little, because as you do that, um, then other people can start to connect dots for you, right? Like you're, you're one person and your reach is only so far, but the network that you build around your interests and, uh, around the types of things that you care about, uh, that's what really unlocks new opportunities because those are the people who you know you can you can count on to say like, hey, I met this really interesting person at another meeting, and the two of you should talk because 
you know, they care about X and you do Y and X and Y should come together. Right. And, and to me, that I think is, is probably one of the things that I didn't do well that I wish I had done better. Um, but I think just dumb luck worked for me. Uh, and you know, that's, that's not, you know, not, not a good takeaway message, but, um, but I think it's, if I had to change one thing, I would, I would definitely invest more in, uh, you know, building relationships. It's like one thing to be really smart and technically competent and, you know, able to, to code whatever you want to code and design whatever you want to design. But it's really the human part of it that I think uh, gives you the opportunities where you can make a big difference and have a huge impact. So don't forget about the human side of uh, technology development. It's really important. Very wise words. I don't think that anybody who has heard this episode or who has seen your bio will buy that dumb luck factored into your success, but we can call it, let's say, smart luck. (laughs) It might be luck, but I don't think it was dumb. You have done more in the first part of your career than most people will do in their entire lives. Um, And clearly you have always had a very different way of seeing the world. And I just appreciate you talk about that human connection. This is this exactly right here is what I live for and what I appreciate so much. So I'm just deeply honored that you would take the time, share your brilliant insight with me and with all of us. Um, It's very much appreciated. And I look forward to you know seeing what happens with your company in the, the the upcoming five years. I know it's going to be insane, and it's only going to get better. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time on a Friday to to sit with me. Um, and where can people they can support you? What's the website? Where can they follow along? You can promote yourself in any way you like. Yeah, I mean, check us out at kernel.com. Uh, all the information about the work we're doing is there. We have two ongoing uh, clinical studies. So one in depression and one in dementia, both uh, are linked from our website. So if you are in Southern California right now, that's our main uh, geographic region that we're working in uh, and uh, are interested in participating in one of those, you can check our site out. They're registered on clinicaltrials.gov as well. Um, and so those are those are really the things that if people are interested in helping out, we're, we're trying to push forward and, you know, maybe they have a a clinician friend, a neurologist or a psychiatrist that would really love to, you know, do some research and bring technology into their practice that could benefit their patients in the future. You know, those sorts of things we're, we're always on the look for. Like I said, it's that human part. Like I like building relationships. Even if we can't do something together now, it's getting to know one another and knowing that, you know, in a couple of years or whenever the time is right, uh, you know, we can, we can really take off and do something together. So, you know, I, I really appreciate and, you know, thank you for, for having me here. It's been, uh, been a lot of fun and I really would love to measure your brain sometime. So, yes, uh, come we'll on by it. and, uh, I will. we'll, we'll show you what the kernel's all about. I cannot wait. I'm very, very, very excited for this. So thank you for that offer and for being here once again. And with that, the official podcast is over. All right, boyos and girlos. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with somebody who might want to hear it, who wants their mind blown. Post it on your social medias, rated five stars, leave a nice comment. Let me know you heard it. Let me know you're out there. Drop a line. Hope you've been well, and I look forward to seeing you again in next week's installment of Beat the Often Path. Take care.